we go head to head to determine <laughs> which are the best top five Christmas movies. Absolutely, and you will lose. So diehards off the table for you. <laughs> sit on a throne of you lies. Sit on a throne of lies. <laughs> the movies that really move us, and I'm talking about all films yeah. that really move us, always have some kind of kernel of truth that they are appealing to. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. I have a bearded Mark Newman here joining me today. Oh. How are you doing, Mark? Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I dye it this color every year around uh, around Christmas time. You're mm-hmm. so benevolent and so caring. Uh, to do it. And you have the Christmas spirit. All right, so today we have a Christmas special episode that we're sharing with our audience. We're going to go over our top five uh, Christmas films kind of of all time that are in our heart that we like to, to watch around this time of the year. Um, and I wanted to bring you back on, obviously, uh, for those who don't know, uh, you're a pro-life hero, you're a pro-life advocate, and you're a prominent pro-life speaker around the nation. You are already on a live episode with us where we dig into kind of the reasons to be pro-life, but then also, too, for those of us who are pro-life, to be vocal about mm-hmm. that position and to speak with other people who disagree with us and to share our perspective and be informed about that stuff. Um, but one thing people may not know about you is that you are also a trained film critic and that you actually taught film criticism in college. Well, I taught rhetorical criticism, a little bit different. Okay. But uh, r- film critics, they're always looking at things like, Missing scene, and other words most people don't know what they mean. Uh, it's always about the construction of the film, how yeah. the film's put together, kind of shot. I'm interested in the cultural meaning of movies and other visual artifacts. So my training, uh, yeah. what I taught at Regent University, a lot of my courses was in the rhetoric of film, uh, different kinds of rhetoric of mass media. And so I've been had a a long standing. Uh, interest in Christmas movies, and I uh, ran a company for a long time called Movie Ministry, and we had a subsection called Movie Bible Study, and one of the things we did was create Bible studies for a lot of films, and one of our most popular uh, Bible study series at any given year were the Christmas movies that we put out, so yeah. I have I have very, very firm opinions on these things, so it'll be interesting as we go head-to-head to determine <laughs> which are the best top five Christmas movies of all of all time, right? Not just like since you've been alive and stuff. Yeah, well, in our opinion, but of course, we're the only one in this room, so nobody else's opinion matters. That's correct. Well, and because it's rhetorical, we're going to convince people that our selections are the best. Absolutely, and you will lose. So uh, the one thing that you also did that people should know is you wrote a book as well about the subject, kind of. I've got, well, I've got a... uh, I've got one book no one will ever want to read called A Rhetorical Analysis of Popular American Film, uh, which is a graduate-level textbook. But I'm working on a book right now, and please don't judge me. It's called (laughs) uh, Mistletoe Movies, How Hallmark Christmas Films Speak to the Longings in Our Heart. Now, I want to make it clear. I'm not going to be using any of the Hallmark Christmas films as my top five here. Praise the Lord. But I'm just letting you know that they're a lot, you know, the whole world around October, middle of October, gets divided into two groups of people. People who love Hallmark Christmas movies and people like Reed who want to ridicule them. Yeah, so Ridiculous people in me. I, I understand. So, um, But trust me, when the book comes out, it's going to change your mind. Okay, I was so going to say, I hope you didn't add any Hallmark movies what, to this No, list. I did not, but I'll let, when the book comes out, I'll come back and we'll do a whole thing on Hallmark Christmas films, at, at which point at the end of it, you can mea culpa 
You know, okay. All, you want. all right. Well, I, I am highly skeptical at this point, right. um, but you're used to dealing with skeptics. So yes, nonetheless, uh, all right. So let me share the ground rules with everybody that's watching so they know how we're going to do this. So we're going to start with our fifth top film, and then we'll work our way down. Now, I judged mine based upon uh, the message. Uh, it's family friendliness because I have young kids, so there may be people who like have a different barometer here, but that's something that's important to me. I want to be able to sit, watch this film with 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 my kids and enjoy Christmas with them. Uh, so diehards off the table for you. Yeah. Well, oh boy. You <laughs> opened many, up a can of worms. Do there. you know how many men think that Die Hard is the number one Christmas film? I don't think it's, it's the number not. one. <laughs> okay. Let's. You you started this fight. Is it a Christmas film? It takes place during Christmas. That does not make it a Christmas film. Okay. See, I think it is because it's about saving your wife and caring about your family, and it does take place during Christmas. So I think those are great Christmas messages. But nonetheless, all right. We'll, we'll see so, where it is in your top five. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. All right. So novelty and then uh, nostalgia, too, because I think there's some element. Would you agree with this, that some element of what makes a good Christmas film is something that has an emotional attachment, not only because of the message, but because of maybe memories, fond memories? Certainly. Yeah. All right. So, uh, so that's what I did. So, what are what did I miss? Maybe something that you said is an important criteria for a great Christmas film. Um, Other than okay, so forgive me, Jesus and the birth of Christ and that being important. So, okay, the first thing you're going to discover is that uh, the nativity is not among my five okay. top five Christmas movies. So, I don't think when we're talking about Christmas movies as a genre, yeah, right. I'm looking at it as a holiday season and not necessarily as uh, as something that's pointing directly at Jesus. But I do think it's important, especially as we get down closer to my top of the list, that there are um, there are messages or analogies or metaphors that we can draw on to help lead people to a better understanding of God. And so you're going to find that that plays throughout my entire list. Okay. Um, yeah, me too. Oh, they so, have to be well made as well. I mean, I don't care how great the message is. If yeah. the movie's lousy, it's just a lousy movie. Nobody's going to watch it. Yeah, me too. Because I think films um, have a fortunate uh, problem is that they cannot help but be truthful. And like you, mm -hmm. I think, and maybe you're going to, I think you'd agree with me on this, but art house films are all the way over to like one side. The films that are like supposed to be about nothing, which make no sense and nobody even understands what they are at the end of the day. It's like screamo music for me. It's just like, okay, whatever. I think you're supposed to understand what they say in music. Nah, and I've got some amens already in the comments section. But um, <laughs> so when we talk about Christmas films, yes, no, is obviously you can put overt Christian films in there, but many films um, overtly or inadvertently have christian messages in yes. in them because they're trying to portray a universal truth that speaks to the human heart and they happen into so very often in one of my films you'll see this i think uh they happen into christian realities and christian mm -hmm. truths because the bible is happens to be full of those universal truths and realities that we all live by the movies that really move us and i'm talking about all films yeah. that really move us always have some kind of kernel of truth that they are appealing to one of my favorite films is a uh, big fish mm, which yeah. is a great movie um, and the thing that I really like about it is it's really about eternal life and what does it mean to live forever. And I think there are moments in that film where people kind of gasp inwardly. And I always told my students, anytime that happens in a movie theater where, where something happens and people go, oh, or they start to tear up, they're having an emotional um, yeah. reaction. Um, there was a, I'm sorry I'm going to get all scholarly with you now, but there is a, um, a scholar named, um, I'm going to probably butcher the name, Mircea Eliade, who talks about hierophanies, these, um, these moments where the divine touches um, – 
the profane. Hmm. And so uh, she said the book is called The Sacred and the Profane. Um, so if uh, when that happens, when that moment occurs, you can see it happen in the eyes of people in an yeah. audience. And so uh, I think a lot of times we're looking for that. So you're right. I think good films can't help but tell the truth. When films do nothing but tell lies, Nobody wants to watch those yeah, films. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So um, so what we're going to do is we're going to start with five. We'll work our way down to one. Right. We'll put honorable mentions right before the first one. And we're going to work really, really quick at the the front end and then take most of our time with the first one and talk about why we think that's the most important or why that's the most powerful uh, film in, in our estimation. Um, and so if one of the films that uh, are mentioned are somewhere else on the list, we'll reserve our comments until we finally get to that one on the list. Okay, so um, and we're gonna start with um, with you because you're the guest. So oh, no, no, we got to start with you because okay. as, uh, because I'm the, there's clearly some antagonism going on here, <laughs> folks. So I just want to make it clear that when when someone invites you onto their program, you have to be able to go last. Sure, so okay, go All for right. it. All right, I actually <laughs> wanted to go uh, first, but I didn't want to be rude. Good. So no. sure, uh, so now it's it's time to be rude. Okay, so fifth one for me is Polar Express, um, and I don't have too too much to say about this one except just that. Uh, this this one hits the nostalgia piece for me, but then it also hits the message piece for me because uh, this book was written in 1985, The Polar Express, and it was a book that I grew up reading, especially around mm-hmm. Christmas time. So uh, when I, I was probably about like four years old, three, four years old when it was first written, and so it was a prominent part of my upbringing as a kid. Um, I was born in 1981. And mm-hmm. uh, and then the other message part of this just really, uh, other than the, like the visuals, because the visuals are spectacular uh, in the film. It's a really, really cool film. The uh, I like the idea of a boy that doesn't believe in Christmas or doesn't believe in Santa or doesn't believe in any of that stuff who is taken on a journey that helps him rediscover belief. So mm-hmm. I think that there's something super, super powerful in that. Okay, so you can uh, uh, you can comment about that or you can share your fifth one. Okay. Um, well, I briefly, it's, it's on my list, but it's not on my list there. Okay. Um, but I do agree with you. It's beautiful. It's magical. As a matter of fact, as soon as we're done, I'm going to go watch it in IMAX 3D over at the uh, uh, Tennessee Aquarium. I'm watching it on Thursday. Uh, my number five is interestingly similar to yours in a way, and it's probably the goofiest movie that I have on my list, which is the Santa Claus Two, not the Santa Claus one. I don't want to see you know Santa falling yeah. off a roof and dying. But the Santa Claus Two, hmm. the whole movie is about uh, the idea that seeing is not believing, but that believing is seeing. As a matter of fact, that occurs in a key moment in the film when Charlie, uh, Santa's son, um, shows his uh, intriguingly principal Newman uh, shows her a snow globe. And it magically allows her to see into the North Pole. And he tries to explain to her, hey, look, I know you didn't believe all this, but I just want to let you know that believing is seeing. And that is an unbelievably uh, real truth. Mm-hmm. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his uh, in his uh, essay, um, oh, in a tool shed. I'm losing it right now because I'm sleep deprived. Uh, meditation in a tool shed. He talks about looking in a tool shed, you see a beam of light coming through a hole in the tool shed. He said, you can look at the beam of light. He said, or you can enter in the beam of light and look along it, and then you can see the tree and everything else outside. Mm. He calls that looking along. You can't look along outside of the beam. You have to enter it in order to be able to see. And there's a a deep truth about Christianity there that says, you know, some things are spiritually discerned, 
and they just simply can't be known from the outside. You have to enter in first, and then yeah. you'll be shown. Yeah. He says something else in Pilgrim's Regress. Have you ever read Pilgrim's Regress? You know, I probably have, but it's been a long time. Yeah. Uh, so it's basically just kind of his take on Pilgrim's Progress, but in reverse. Mm-hmm. Instead of uh, st- starting from uh, a place of non-faith, he starts from a place of like uh, from a place of faith and then moving away from faith, mm-hmm. I think is essentially it. But nonetheless, he says, uh, the best people, this really stuck with me too, the best people to critique the faith are those who are within the faith. Mm-hmm. The best place to critique something is from home. So essentially he's taking on the skeptic or the the Richard Dawkins, of course, who wasn't alive back then, or at least wasn't prominent mm-hmm. back then, but uh, the, the, the skeptic who doesn't believe in God and says, the people who are most qualified to actually critique faith are those who have faith, because mm-hmm. you don't have any respect or any understanding necessarily of that faith to be able to truly effectively critique it. So right. I think there's some, there's some power in that. Um, okay, so the fourth one for me is Elf. All right. Now, I'm going to assume that this doesn't even make your list, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but the reason, but I think you'll perhaps uh, believe my re- rhetoric here. Uh, the reason that I think Elf is so interesting is not only it's funny, I really do like Will Ferrell, but also uh, it is it is quite the pro-life story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's kind of unique, too, when that happens, when, when Hollywood movies accident themselves into the pro-life message. So Buddy could have been aborted. Uh, Buddy could have been uh, destroyed before he ever had the chance to be put up for adoption, which, of course, he's put up for adoption and given to an elf who raises him uh, as his own. And then he's the tallest elf because he's human. And then he goes back and rediscovers it, that, who his dad is um, and all of that. And so th- it's a really uh, family-friendly movie in the sense that it's really all about the importance of life and not just the importance of family and togetherness, which which I think is valid, but is a little overwrought around the Christmas time. Uh, but it's also about the importance of life. Um, so uh, I, I think that uh, it's really interesting to see a Christmas movie about a guy who probably do- doesn't live the lifestyle and doesn't really want to invite into his uh, into his world a kid, but learns through the the power and the, the some of the the magic and the meaning of Christmas to appreciate. Um, to appreciate the life that he could have given up, and, and in a sense did, but then gets to rediscover later later in his life. So, so Elf is not only funny, but it's also touching in a way. All right, so Elf is in my honorable mention list, but it's okay. not in my top five. Um, but I will say this, I'm going to give away a, a great sermon illustration to every pastor or teacher who's you know, watching today. There is a wonderful moment in Elf when he finds out that Santa is coming. Mm-hmm. Right, remember this? Yeah. Says Santa's coming. Coming. He, he loses his mind, and then he decorates the whole place. It makes it look like it's never looked in the history of this of this department store. And I've used that, I can't tell you how many times, uh, to, as an opening to a sermon on heaven. Hmm. Where I, so I'll open up with that, and then, I'll, and then I'll look at everybody, and I'll say, you know, because he says, you know, Santa's coming. I know him. Yeah. I, I know him. And I looked at my congregation, and I'll go, you know, Jesus is coming. Mm-hmm. I know him. And you know what everybody does? They sit on their hands and I say, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is why we need to understand better about heaven and what it means to come back to Jesus. Wow, that's powerful. I love so, that. uh, yeah. Anyway, free sermon illustration. <laughs> no, that's great. And then there's another sermon illustration too, but this one's for Satan. You <laughs> sit on a throne <laughs> of lies. You sit on a throne of lies. <laughs> uh, my number four is Miracle on 34th Street. Okay. And you're going to see a theme that's going to run through mine. Uh, Miracle on 34th Street is the story of a guy who claims to be uh, Chris Kringle um, working at a depart- as a department store Santa. And then eventually he gets uh, um, 
the the person, Mr. Shellhammer, who is the psychiatrist, uh, decides that he is uh, incompetent and has lost his mind, and uh, they're going to put him on trial. So the Miracle on 34th Street is about whether or not this guy really is, in fact, Santa Claus. And uh, he ends up getting an attorney, and the attorney has to come up with a case to demonstrate whether or not He's Santa Claus. Now, I don't want to be a spoiler here, so we're not going to say how things turn out at the end, but, you know, it's a Christmas movie, so you can probably guess. Um, But it's still about amassing pieces of evidence for the existence of someone that, on the surface, a lot of people are skeptical of. And I find this fascinating, despite all of the evidences that he gives, and probably the one that, that tugs at the heart of most people, is a bit when a little girl is sat on Santa Claus's lap and he speaks Dutch to her. And so it's clear that that this Santa Claus is, he's at least bilingual, but you get the sense that it didn't matter what kid got set on his lap, he would be able to speak in that language. Gosh. So uh, God being able to speak to people where they are, no matter what. And there's a lot of other elements in the, the film that, that lend the idea uh, that maybe this is the real deal. Yeah, I think that's kind of it. By the way, the Miracle on 34th Street is on my honorable mention as well. I think there's something powerful in that that I didn't even consider before that... Um, and maybe this is a little bit charged too for Christmas, uh, a Christmas special. But but I think it's relevant that we're we're living in this time where we feel like we have to change Santa to try to accommodate everybody instead of realizing that Santa is for everybody already. Yes. Um, so I think that there's something powerful to consider there. Um, okay. So uh, the third one for me is uh, how the Grinch stole Christmas. Now I had a couple of different options. I don't know if that counts. Okay. Does why? That count? It's a television. Now wait a minute. Which version? Okay, yeah, so that's what I was about to say. So uh, I'll just jump to it and just tell you the, the original cartoon version of 1966. All right, I'm going to let it slide, but it's really a TV show. <laughs> okay. So, but it's from a book. Okay. Um, uh, well, that makes it a Christmas movie. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the reason I didn't go with the Jim Carrey one is that the Jim Carrey one is all about how the who's down in Whoville were responsible for him becoming the Grinch in the first place, which is a perfect movie for our generation because we want to blame everybody else for our bad decision-making and our bad behavior. It's also very family unfriendly. Yeah. Yes. And then there was, I I almost did the most recent one, which is actually a little bit more true to the story. um, But I didn't remember it well enough. Um, The the 2019 version, I think. Yeah, the Illumination one. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's pretty good. Um, Clearly, it didn't have a big impact on you, though you'd remember it better. No, but I think ultimately the original story just Mm -hmm. about Christmas not being about presents is something we say, and it is a little bit cliche at this point, but I think we always need to remind ourselves that Christmas can be had even if you don't have the most extravagant tree, if you don't have the presents, if you don't have any of the trappings that you think come with Christmas, Mm -hmm. but you have the thing thing that matters most about Christmas. I think that that's, uh, that's a reminder that never gets old to me. I also like the redemptive aspect. It's not on my list because it's not a movie, but it would would be on my list because of the redemptive aspect, right? He comes to know Christmas. Now, they never spell it out that it's Jesus, but it isn't. How do you have Christmas without Christ? You know, they they talk about Christ, but the fact that he has, uh, he not only has a, uh, he has a change of heart, literally, it grows three sizes that day. And then he doesn't just believe, he repents. And actually has a change of not only heart, but also Nature. Of, 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 well, of action. He yeah. returns everything. He makes restitution and then becomes part of the community. Mm. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, story of repentance. Okay, what's your number my three? My number three, and this is going to shock a lot of people, so sorry in advance. My number three is It's a Wonderful Life. Okay. Now, this is going to be most people's number one. It's my number three. It's only my number three because um, it is a great story. 
don't get me wrong, and I can't get through it without crying <laughs> when he gets on that bridge and starts going, I want my life back. I don't know anybody who doesn't shed tears. Um, it's it's an incredible film. It is uh, The thing I like about it, why it's on my list at all, is it's, again, it's a story about how um, how a single event can change your life. Um, right, the, the single event in this case is he's trying and trying and trying and trying and trying to honor his father's legacy, and then there's this single event that happens with his uncle that just blows his life apart and makes him question everything about his life. Yeah. All the way up until then, right, it's always been, well, something bad happened, but something good happened, right? And then something bad happens, but something good happens, and you start to see the value of your life, and your friends are out there making a lot of money, and you're still got your nose to the grindstone, but look at all the people you're helping. I mean, it's really, there's some great things, and then there's finally this straw that breaks the camel's back for him, and he thinks he's going to be going to jail, and it's going to destroy his family, and he thinks, in that moment, his life is not worth living. Yeah, And then God intervenes. And it's a beautiful thing. I love how the movie opens because it's got everybody praying, right, at the beginning. Yep. Oh, oh, please, God, help Daddy. I mean, it's, oh, it kills you just when you're watching yeah. the opening credits. But you're realizing this is, um, and by the way, it's an unbelievably long film. It's a lot longer than most people think. It's a really long movie. But it directly invokes God. God directly interacts. Yeah. But let's be honest. There are some theological problems with this film. <laughs> okay. Okay. Like, for example... Angels aren't dead human beings that earn their wings later on. I don't care how many bells you ring. I'm sorry if I'm messing up your theology, but it's there are some theological issues. Um, but I don't I, hear any bells, but right now there are a bunch of small children crying correct, right now because probably, of what you're saying. I agree. But but it's a beautiful film. It does end nicely. Um, I think it's a very marriage-positive film, mm-hmm. but it doesn't sugarcoat the difficulties of marriage. I mean, there's some really ugly moments uh, in that film uh, between George and his own kids. That are they're very hard to watch as yeah. he's as he's kind of falling apart. There's actually some kind of creepy moments even in his courtship with Mary, both between George and his kids, uh, and that one during the courtship moment between George and even Mary. Which, yeah, that's been a that's always kind of bothered me kind a little bit. From... Yeah, but uh, but overall, you know, it's a beautiful f- film uh, that deals with the concept of the value of every human life and how God sees us is very different than how we see uh, ourselves and how there's so much about our lives that we cannot know that only God knows. But if it were revealed to you, I think you'd value your life a whole lot more. You have no idea, for example, we're doing this podcast. You'll never meet many of the people who are watching this podcast and who, for some reason, during the course of this conversation, in ways we can't even imagine, they're going to be touched and affected by it. We don't know. Um, Our lives are valuable because God gives them value. Yeah, that's great. I love that. That's on my list as well, uh, but it is also going to come a little bit later. Yeah, I so uh, I, I think you probably know where. Yes. All right. So the next one for me, so number two, is Christmas Carol. So there are so many iterations of this um, that could be mentioned. And all of them are pretty similar, but there are some that have some uh, kind of derivations that I don't think are as true to the original story. And I love Charles Dickens. I think he's a fantastic author. And the original story, a lot of people don't know, is was meant to be a ghost story. So it was meant to not necessarily be kind of like, I think it's called Krampus or something like that, where it's like hack and destroy and kill and murder people Christmas movie. It's not like Halloween Halloween 2.0, like there's some horror movies that are trying to trying to do that. But it was supposed to be a ghost story. And so you think about that, um, I don't even remember the name of the song, where it says scary ghost stories and tales of the glory of Christmas is long, long ago. It's the most wonderful time most of time, year. Yeah, so that, so there's, so you think to yourself, how does like ghost stories and, and that kind of like coincide with the birth of Christ and the real message of Christmas and stuff. But 
Um, but I, so I kind of like the idea of there being a ghost story that's a Christmas story, but also most importantly people are very familiar with the film and i'm going to go ahead and just name like the jim carrey version just because i think that's one that i would watch with my kids and one that wouldn't be too scary for them but still kind of gives this impression of kind of the the scariness of the life decisions that we make and and becoming somebody who is totally inwardly focused totally focused on materialism and not focused on the things that truly truly matter um uh, so, so I'll name that as the the one that I'm talking about. But, but ultimately, I guess writ large, the story is interesting to me because in my own heart, I'll I'll have a soul bearing moment here. In my own heart, Christmas reminds me every time each year of the story that is told in Christmas Carol. It reminds me to think about the things that actually really matter, the things that that consume me sometimes that don't really really aren't really that important after all. And and it reminds me about the things that, that truly are. So much similar to It's a Wonderful Life, um, you get to see uh, the life of this individual by, behind the scenes, what people really think about him, but then also, too, what happens with this person were to die and all, these th- all this stuff. Um, and I think that that's a really, really unique way to look at life. But more importantly, I, I love the reminder that Christmas is about... Th- uh, is about love, and most importantly, the love that Jesus showed us by coming to this earth, that kind of love that can take an old, miserly, Scrooge-type person that won't even spare a single bit of coal for his co-worker, and, and, and then when those guys come and ask him for a little bit of uh, charity just because it's Christmas, and, and that's where the bah humbug comes for the first time, um, I think, uh, but, and, and he says, no way, let him go get jobs in, the, in, the, in those... Uh, Union work in those union workhouses yeah. where, where, where people notoriously died and stuff like that because of the working conditions that were there. To take that guy and to have him at the end of, of the story experience the conversion that uh, is taking place. Charles Dickens is undeniably a Christian, but then this is an undeniably Christian story, even though Jesus doesn't make an actual appearance in the story. It's absolutely a story of redemption and changing the most wicked among us. So if there's not a hope that's better than that for Christmas, I don't know what it is. Well, clearly there must be because it was your number two and not your number one. But well, I'll, I'll explain why, I guess. <laughs> I will let you know that it, that was also made my number two, and I had a hard time deciding which version to go with. The George C. Scott version is a favorite of mine, but I do like the Jim Carrey version as well for a lot of the reasons that you talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I think I would like to add to what you're saying is that not only is Scrooge turned from a miser into someone who's more liberal, so he does learn how to give. Yeah. That is true. But part of the story that I think a lot of people don't grasp is the fact that he also learns for the first time in his life to receive. Because in Scrooge's economy, everything Mm, must be earned, right? Everything. So if the poor are, they don't have what they need, wealth, go to the workhouse, go on the treadmill. The treadmill, by the way, was a horrifying uh, device, which later was uh, outlawed. But um, you know, you only get it if you earn it. Uh, Bob Cratchit, you want more coal? You have to work harder or do something better or maybe get a different position because, my goodness, goodness, you'd have to think that a guy like Bob Cratchit, he must be desperate yeah. to work for a man like Scrooge. So uh, there is that aspect of it where he's got this idea of merit, this very basic idea about merit. And so the the film goes about breaking that down and teaching him to be liberal, but it also teaches him how to receive and the best example is that bit where with Fred, his nephew. His nephew has been inviting him to Christmas dinner for ages, apparently. He's never even met the nephew's new wife, ever. 
And so he keeps coming in to go, I'll keep coming in every year and, and inviting you, Uncle. Bah, humbug, you keep yeah, Christmas in your way, I'll keep it in mine. But that's the problem, you don't keep it. Well, let me leave it alone then. And then at the end of the film, when he does go to friend's, Fred's house, he comes with no expectations. In order for him to be admitted to that house, he can't barge his way in. He can't pay his way in. He has to be invited in. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Fred opens the door and says, come on in. But there are these wonderful moments where he's got to put himself out there, and then he has to receive grace that's being extended to him by others and recognize it for what it is. And for that reason, that's why it's really close toward my top at number two. Yeah, yeah I love it. And uh, I, I do want to just mention this again, just because when you were talking, it made me think of this, is that the ghost story element. I think that's a really clever device, too, because if there is something that we should hold with more reverence and be actually kind of scared about is living that kind of life where we're wrapped up in materialism, where we're wrapped up in uh, the hustle and bustle of our lives and and forgetting the most important things that are all around us on a regular basis that we often take for granted, the things that don't come up on our radar and the things that sometimes we don't estimate with the greatest amount of value because it's not demanding of our time or it doesn't provide for us the greatest financial return, perhaps. Um, if there's, and, and we're so consumed with this, and, and sometimes we're guilty of this even because of the holidays. It should be scary to us that we would live our life in such a way. And a treadmill kind of like an um, interesting, uh, ironic uh, device there because the, the, the treadmill of life is, mm-hmm. is so rapacious that if we're not careful, we're on that treadmill and we forget to, to press pause for a moment and really reconsider our value system and the things that truly matter most to us. And so for me, Christmas always does that, and that's why I like Christmas Carol so much. Um, yeah. Marley's ghost has always been the most terrifying figure in all of that. Uh, yeah. Even more so than death at the end is because it speaks to the idea in the scripture that says it is given to each man once to die and then the judgment. Because yeah. he says, is there no way out? And he says, no, there's not. This is, these are the chains, chains I forged for myself in life, and now I will carry them in death. Oof. And boy, there's only one person that can liberate you from that, and that is Jesus Christ. Yeah, no doubt. That sends chills down mm. my spine. Okay, so before we get to our number one, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the worst Christmas movie of all time. Oh, there are so many. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you mine, and I'm just going to give you one. And uh, I, I was actually I was thinking you might actually have this on your top five list, but um, A Christmas Story. I absolutely hate that story, uh, and I know so many people put that on their top, and I don't know why. I think there's a nostalgia element to it, but I think it's the most gross, horrible representation of parents and kids, and and maybe, yes, it's accurate, but it's just like, it's the worst representation, I think, of Christmas, in, in my opinion. Uh, so I just, I just absolutely hate that story in almost every way possible. <laughs> okay, I gotta let you know, the first time I saw A Christmas Story, I hated it. The second time I saw A Christmas Story, I watched it with a lot of people who were enjoying it, and I liked it. Okay. And then I saw it again by myself, and I hated it. So I think it's one of these deals where you kind of got to be in the mood, but it's a silly, uh, foolish film. It's that, an echo chamber is it's what it is. It's very bad. Um, as a, and as a movie, it's just a very bad movie. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of films that would be a lot worse than that that would fall into the category, at least technically, of Christmas movies. For example, as you probably are aware, there are a number of horror slasher films yeah. that are Christmas movies. Um, but... I don't know that I even consider those Christmas movies, though. I think that's a category error. All right. And I would agree with you. They're horrifying, Um, both as films, you know, as filmmaking and also uh, as what they represent. The film Prancer, all it did to me was bum me out. Uh, It's the story of a little girl who finds a a reindeer in her shed. And I don't know, can't remember Mm, much about it because I think I've literally suppressed it because it was so depressing to me. But there's uh, another film 
uh, and and it, it, again, it's so bad. I've kind of repressed it. Uh, it's a movie. It's got uh, Vince Vaughn in it, and he has. Uh, yeah. He, it, he's. I think it's Bad Santa, out. right? No, he's got he got a couple of them. He's got uh, Fred Claus, I think, is one of them, uh-huh. uh, and and so he's got a couple of them. The other one is it's during the holidays, and he's taking his girlfriend around to meet people, and he uh-huh. ultimately at the end of the middle of the film and ends up dumping his. His uh, girlfriend off at his uh, parents. The whole idea was they they were living together, had no real intention of getting married. Uh, they were just kind of friends with benefits, and then she kind of wants to make things happen, and 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 he shies away. And the thing that I hated about it was at the very end of the film, where you're waiting for the big denouement, where he gets down on his knees and asks her to marry him. He doesn't. He just kind of asks her to live with him. <laughs> and I thought. What? So I don't want to hear it from anybody who's a Hallmark Christmas movie hater. At least at the end of most of those films, you either either there's an actual ring being presented or it's very it. clear we are headed in that direction. But to finish a film by basically saying, hey, can we shack up? I'm sorry. That's not a Christmas <laughs> movie. And that thing just needs to be. We should have a flush noise. All right, I will put I will put one in for you. Would you? I'd appreciate it because those films are horrible. That's a very uh, that's a very Beyonce thing of you to say. You got to put a ring on it, baby. Yeah, there um, you go. All right, do you uh, do you have another one? Uh, that... There there are too many. There are too many to name. Okay. By the way, you said honor. We were going to talk about honorable mentions. Yeah, Elf we can... was on my honorable mention, but also the man who invented Christmas. Okay, I don't think a, I'm familiar with oh that. Oh boy, wonderful film about uh, how Charles Dickens came up with a Christmas. Oh yes, Carol. yes. Okay, I did yeah, see this. I'd like that. Yep. So that's the only one I've got right now. That's on uh, Amazon Prime, I think. Okay, you're you're going to be really uh, mad at me for my honorable mention because one of them I don't even know is a Christmas movie, <laughs> but I just wanted to use my honorable mentions to oh, throw you're it in there. Oh, you're going to do Charlie Brown, aren't you? Uh, no, no, oh, no, no, okay. no. So uh, one of them is uh, Scrooge. Uh, honorable mention simply because, and f- you'll have to forgive me, and I know it's a little crass, but uh, are you familiar with Scrooge? Did you ever tell with Bill Murray? Bill Murray, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a take on uh, The Christmas Carol, but uh, it, I like Bill Murray. It reminds me of my dad. My dad just passed away about a year ago. My dad was a big Bill Murray fan and introduced me to that original kind of, uh, I don't know if original cast, but maybe original cast of Saturday Night Live and stuff. So it holds a very powerful um, nostalgia for me. So that's a movie that we watched. Tom um, Waits was great in that. Yeah, so um, so it, it, it's a little bit more of kind of the scary, but it's also comedy, and so it's just an interesting take on that. Yeah, it's on also that a little PG thirteen too, I think. Yes, for yeah, sure. So. Uh, <laughs> Parents, be warned. Yeah, don't let your don't let your kids watch that. That's why it's an only only an honorable mention. Right. And then uh, kind of maybe kind of similar is uh, more of the same thing is in terms of that original SNL cast is. Uh, uh, planes, trains, and automobiles. Now, this is a holiday yeah. Thanksgiving film, so it's not really even. I just want to throw it out there, just because I think it's kind of an interesting film. But it does have a redemptive purpose. At the end yeah. of the day, this guy he hates and cannot stand. He learns to realize that much of what his uh, his problems, his foibles, come from scars in his past, and that's something that I think I've recognized a lot in life with a lot of people. Is that you can't be too quick to judge people. You must realize that sometimes some of who they are is based upon the wounds that they had in the past. Uh, last but not least because you're going to go last uh, and give your uh, final film. Uh, so my number one is, of course, It's a Wonderful Life. It's just so cliche, Reed. <laughs> but go ahead. No, I don't think it is because so many people would put – so many people in my age group would put Christmas Story as their number one. Oh, and I'm just like, have yeah, you never seen other – that would just others? be sad. Yes. yes. Apparently they were uh, dropped on their head yeah. um, <laughs> as a baby. So, all right. So It's a Wonderful Life. So you said some really, really great stuff. So I'm just going to add to it. Um, I love, and maybe this doesn't have a whole lot to do with Christmas, but maybe there's, I'll try to figure out a way to spin it. Um, 
the reason I love It's a Wonderful Life is because it has emotionally gripping moments. Uh, it's a great uh, story that takes place during Christmas. It's kind of a redemptive story, too, in the form of a Christmas Carol, where the guy kind of experiences kind of a reversal of the way that he was viewing things. I mean, the guy was going to commit suicide, and then he starts to realize, okay, there's more to this life than what I was experiencing. But I think the thing that draws me to it, um, in a similar fashion to Christmas Carol, Christmas Carol is a, is a really redemptive film about spiritual regeneration. And there's another theological concept that I think is an undercurrent um, that's very prominent in It's a Wonderful Life, and that is theodicy. I kind of love thinking about theodicy, and for those who don't know, uh, theodicy is simply kind of the in question form is why does God let bad things happen to good people, or why does why do bad things happen? Why is there suffering? Um, and so, It's a Wonderful Life shows that the difficulties that um, were being experienced were all taking place in George's life um, for a greater redemptive purpose and that there was a reason to everything that was happening. So it shows that there's providence. And so I tie that into the original Christmas story, uh, the nativity story, in that there must have been a lot of those questions. There must have been kind of questions of taxation, questions of the wise men traveling all the way from the east because of a storm, because of a prophecy. Um, that There must have been those questions. I mean, uh, I know we kind of sanitize uh, and don't like to talk about this, but there must have been those questions for all the families who had their babies killed by Herod when, when Herod figured out about Jesus. So there is an element of theodicy in the original Christmas story. I mean, Jesus and his family had to flee to Egypt uh, to get away from Herod because of his murderous... Um, uh, you know, agenda. So uh, I, I just generally love theodicy and thinking about how God uses the things in our life for good. Um, and then I also think it's a part of the Christmas story. So that's why It's a Wonderful Life is number one on, on my list. One of my favorite bits that uh, your discussion brought up in my mind is when uh, George is talking to Clarence and he, he's trying to talk to him about his brother. Yeah. He says, well, your, your, your brother isn't here. What are you talking about my brother? My, my brother was a war hero. He saved thousands of lives. He goes, no. Everyone on that ship perished, George, because you weren't here to save your brother. Mm. Your brother wasn't here to save them. And I thought, wow. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you really had a wonderful life. Yeah. Uh, you just didn't know it. And I think that's the, the key. I think no matter, I, all lives are wonderful lives because the alternative to life is that there's there no impact and you have no idea how your life impacts the lives of other people. So I think you're right. Yeah. All right. Your number five is my number one, yeah, which is so. uh, the Polar Express. Now, people look at me and go, oh, wait a minute, how can that possibly be number one? Those kids have very creepy eyes. Uh, <laughs> it looks kind of weird, a little off. And I think uh, Zemeckis, uh, Robert Zemeckis, who did the Polar Express, who also did um, the Christmas Carol version with, uh, with Carrie, I think he'd upped his game by then, and I, I think the visuals in that are probably even a little bit better. Mm -hmm. But the Polar Express, what draws me to that film uh, is, is its message. And his message, the message is unbelievably deep, much deeper than a lot of people consider on first viewing. But if you have ever read, for example, Blaise Pascal's Pensees, and or if you're familiar with the concept okay. of Pascal's Wager, yeah. right? Pascal's Wager is the idea that it's better to bet that God is than to bet that God is not. Because if you bet that God is not and you are right, um, you haven't won anything or lost anything, right? You're just going to cease to exist. If you bet that God uh, is not and you're wrong, you lose everything, yeah. right? And so they set it up so well at the beginning of the film. Um, he's he's rifling through his drawers. He's got these pieces of evidence that he's got that the North Pole is cold and devoid of life, and that uh, from the Saturday Evening Post, right, with a kid discovering a Santa costume. Ah, oh, see, it's all fake. 
And then he's he's lying down in his bed having convinced himself, I think finally, that there really is no Santa Claus. And now, boy, he's an adult. He's in the know. And in a way, it's kind of like what the serpent said to Eve, right? It's the idea that, oh, see, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Mm. Now, I think God would have eventually shown people uh, what good and evil was but without having them experience it. But here's the case where this kid, he's got this proud uh, this proud feeling now that he knows, and maybe he's made the leap into adulthood. And then his parents come in, and he pretends to be asleep, and they lay out the wager for him. And he says, oh, it's the end of the magic. Hmm. If you cross this line, it's the end. And he goes, oh, end of the magic. He falls asleep, and then, of course, he's visited by this enormous train that magically arrives outside of his house, and uh, and Tom Hanks showing up, who, by the way, is also his dad, and Santa Claus, and the conductor, and everybody else, um, shows up and tells him, you know, it's, it's a train to the North Pole, of course. It's the Polar Express. You want to get on? You got a ticket. And, I mean, I could walk you through, and if somebody wants to email me at mark, M-A-R-C, at speakerforlife.com, I'll be happy to send you the article. Um, all the way along the line, for every evidence that hero boy, which is the only way we know him, for every piece of evidence he has, there's a corresponding piece of evidence um, for Santa Claus. He gets on a train. It takes him on a journey. On the way, he has this interaction with this uh, this mystical hobo, who I like to refer to as the hobo ghost. Mm-hmm. Get it? Um, <laughs> because his job is to convict him of sin. Uh. If you watch the film later on, he's the one who tells him, you're a doubter, you're a doubter, you don't believe and tries to all the way along lead him to recognize there's something weird going on here that is supernatural. And then, of course, the, the coup de grace at the end of the film, the, the wonderful moment, the turn, is um, he gets to the North Pole. He's there. And yet the one thing that he needs for belief is he needs to see Santa Claus. But that is denied to him. All the other kids seem to be able to see him. But even when Santa Claus comes out and appears and it's clear he's there, He's hidden from sight, and, there, and Hero Boy cannot see him until finally a bell pops off of the reindeer's harness, lands on the ground, and it just goes tink, 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 makes no noise. Everybody else is commenting on how beautiful it is, and he can't hear the sound, and he can't see the beauty. And suddenly he reaches over, and he picks up that bell, and he makes a very determined decision. And he says, I believe, and he doesn't just say it once. He says it three times, hmm. which if you're familiar with your uh, with uh, biblical patterns, right, this is a form of emphasis. He says, I believe, I believe. And the third time he says, I believe, he turns the bell, and in the bell he sees a reflection of Santa behind him. And he turns around and sees him in person, and he says, I believe this is yours. Hmm. And that bell then becomes the symbol of his belief. He's been baptized into belief. Now, it's about Santa Claus. But here's the beautiful thing, and I don't know if this was in the book. I never read the book. It happened long before, long after I was a kid. Yeah. But there's a moment when Santa Claus, Tom Hanks is voicing Santa Claus. He says, this bell is a symbol. He says, as am I. He's a symbol. Symbol of what? Well, that's something you're going to find out more later as you become more and more an adult. And it reminds me of the moment when the Pevensey children are being told they're not going to be able to come back to Narnia yeah. anymore. And they're, the yeah, well, it's actually yeah, in the Voyage of the, Dawn, of, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, yes. And, uh, and he said, they, they, what, what, what do you mean we don't get to come back? We won't be able to see you. He says, oh, children, he says, I am the great bridge builder. And by knowing me a little here, you're going to be able to know me a lot better there. He never once says, as Jesus... He just says, here, I am this symbol, but there you're going to know me fully. And so these are the reasons why, I mean, to watch this journey 
of belief that so mirrors the journey that many of us take in the skeptical age that we live in, where we're looking for evidence, and God is saying to us, I've given you evidence, I've given you all of this evidence, and you're just ignoring it. You look for human beings or for signs of life on faraway planets, but you can't see it in your own making. Yeah. You know, and so to me, it's a great jump off point for incredible discussions about what constitutes sufficient belief and why we can know that God has provided it for us. Yeah. You know, didn't leave you without witness, right? God has given you all the evidence that you need. It's never going to be sufficient evidence. We'll always have a reason to say why, oh, that couldn't have happened because of this, that, or the other thing. But there's so much of it that God has made a very compelling case for himself. But he does want us to take that extra step. It's not a blind step. It's not blind faith. It's faith based on sufficient reason to believe. Yeah, that's great. Um, The one thing I was thinking about as you were talking about that is— Uh, toward the end is uh, sometimes we're accused, Christians are accused of maybe seeing into things. And then you think about like kind of the the stereotypical way, like Jesus is in everything in the Old Testament. uh, uh, So we're accused sometimes of that. So it's possible that we can see Jesus in um, things that are unintended or shouldn't be seen. Mm -hmm. But I also think we have to consider with the Santa Claus episode that happens with the kid in Polar Express, too, that um, one, it may have been ultimately the author's intention to do that. But more importantly, um, the best kind of stories, in my opinion, are ones that that use those kind of devices to help you think rather than to say, ah, it's Jesus. Um, and so I, I think that um, so for those Christians who are a little bit reticent uh, to kind of celebrate Santa Claus and trying to put the distinction of uh, Jesus between Santa Claus and want that to be really, really clear. I think here, the way the way you just laid that out, I think is so helpful. I, I think, I hope to parents too, to help them realize that obviously they're two different people, right? Um, historically and otherwise. But in terms of imagery and in terms of imagination, um, it's, I think it's important for that story not to come out and just have like Jesus stepping out and it to be him, but to say the person that you were um, looking for all this time uh, can be found and then using the image of Santa to kind of be a stand-in for that ultimate universal truth, I think is a, is a, is a powerful, powerful thing. So hopefully hopefully that makes sense. But I was just trying to, to process that. And so um, When I, missionaries go out on the mission field, they're looking for ah, points of contact, say that, yeah. right? Looking for points of contact. So. So I always tell people, imagine that you go into a foreign country and you want to evangelize, and you discover that these people have this belief in a benevolent father figure who want, who desperately wants to give gifts to his children, and the thing that he wants to give it to them, wants to make them part of his family, and what he wants from them is belief. Yeah. If you found out that they had a Santa story, wouldn't that you... Wouldn't that provide you with all of the points of connection? I mean, look at this. He not, in this case of this kid, he doesn't believe, and he doesn't just leave him in his unbelief. He sends him a locomotive yeah. that arrives in his front door and ferries him there, right? And there's still, right, there's that moment at the end where he wonders when his parents pick up the bell, oh, it's broken. Oh, no, you know, it, it rings for him because he believes. Um it's a great point of contact for people. And, you know, C.S. Lewis talked about uh, how well fiction works to overcome people's kind of ego-involved, rational rejections of things which are supernatural because they've taught that, you know, smart people don't believe in things like that. Yeah. And yet it's so funny that those same people 
still will go watch the Lord of the Rings and be touched by it. Yeah. And he said, it, it amazed me, he said, I enjoyed meeting the Christ figure everywhere else except in Christians. Hmm. And he said when he realized that, it's kind of dawned on him that maybe the problem wasn't the Christians. Maybe the problem was him. God, oh, that's so well put. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's a great way to put that through the lens of contextualization, which uh, I think a peace child, if you've ever read that yes. old missionary book, yes. um, is, a, is a great way to, to think about all of these stories and how they can ultimately point us to a higher and more important uh, meaning. Okay, well, that being said, I think that that hits all the bases, man. Uh, thank you so much for your insight into all of those things, and um, I just, I guess I want to just end this way. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to everybody. Yep, Merry Christmas, guys. Thank you so much for watching. We hope you have a very blessed and very safe Christmas. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. Indie Thinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself. <laughs>